All right. This week on the Let's Go show, we have Dan Co, who is the COO here at HQO. Too much of that rhymes. We cover a lot of ground. We talk about Dan's uh, previous experience, ranging from Harvard to City Hall, working as the chief staff to Mayor Walsh, to working for Ariana Huffington at the Huffington Post, and ultimately why he chose to join HQO after a congressional run. And we geek out a little bit on how technology is going to change the future of cities. This is Chase Garbarino, co-founder and CEO of HQO, and this is the Let's Go Show. Let's go show. Psyched to be here. Psyched to have you. Um, all right. Dan Co, Chief Operating Officer of HQO. Give us, uh, give us your professional background. We'll start with the story on ultimately how you wound up <laughs> not fully suited up, which I know is uncomfortable for you. Yeah. Yeah. Here at HQO. Yeah. So the coolest job I ever had was my first one. Um, and I probably will ever have, which was. Um, I was a narc for the Andover Police Department when I was, I think, seven or eight years <laughs> old, uh, where um, they would go with an unmarked police car and they'd ask young people who actually were underage and looked under very significantly underage to go into convenience stores and try to buy cigarettes. Um, and if they sold, uh, the police officer would then follow up with the visit with, <laughs> with a fine. And in a naive way, I just kind of figured that, like, again, I looked very young. And I think I, actually, I think I was like 13 years old or something like that, but I looked much younger than that. It's like two, three years ago? Yeah, like two, three years ago. <laughs> um, and I was just really struck by how often I was being sold cigarettes um, and that there really wasn't any kind of uh, like moral uh, journey in the person selling me uh, his head at every given time. And so it really made me believe in why we need government and why we need some kind of regulation. Mm -hmm. Um, because you know, the, there's, there's some people who have the general philosophy that free market, you know, you wouldn't sell to a minor because then, you know, it would be hurting the next generation, what have you. But I saw firsthand that wasn't the case. So I got really interested in working on, uh, youth anti-tobacco things in Andover. One thing led to another. And, um, I was, uh, part of the group that helped get the first smoking ban in the restaurants, uh, mm -hmm. in Andover. Um, for me, that really taught me the power of social activism because back then, I mean, no one thinks of tobacco smoke in a restaurant now, but back then, you know, smoking or non-smoking was a very typical question that you would ask. And yeah. if you didn't want access to smoke, it didn't matter. You just have to sit through it. And yeah. Remember it. when they thought like actually just sitting on the other side of the room? <laughs> exactly. Was, ah, you'll be, you'll be smoking good over there. Not. Well, they're sitting yeah. over there. Exactly. But, but how did you, how do you even get hooked up with the police at seven or eight to start going on these stings so or they, whatever they, they had done some ads in like the andover townsman they had done some other stuff i also when i was growing up i was lucky my father was commissioner of public health in massachusetts um mm. and he was one of the, kind of the first person to really inspire me in this area um and he was very active in anti-tobacco initiatives just kind of writ large but for me the kind of area that i really got passionate about was how young people um can stop the the chain of addiction that typically happens well before they're of age. And you know, the tobacco industry later got busted on this. Like they were specifically through Joe Camel and other yeah. icons were targeting young people because they say if you get them hooked at 13, they're a lifetime right. uh customer. So little churn. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Um and so, you know, that that perpetuated on the industry. You have the famous image of the seven heads of tobacco leaders, yeah. you know, raising their right hand and swearing they believe nicotine is not addictive. I mean, the whole thing. So, um, 
we were able to get it banned uh, in Andover. And now, I mean, it's a, just a great example of cultural shifts. No one even thinks about the idea of tobacco smoke in a restaurant or a bar. Right. Whereas back then, you know, the, the bar owners would say, this is going to ruin, like, you know, smoking in a bar is as American as anything else. Right. Right. Um, so that inspired me to get more involved in public service. I ended up working as an intern for uh, Senator Ted Kennedy uh, in high school for a couple summers and then in college. Uh, and then when I was in college, um, there was an institute of politics which brought in a lot of politicians and there were these liaisons to the school. So when I was there, uh, my freshman year, I was the liaison to Jesse the Body Ventura. There you go. Which was an incredible experience <laughs> to kind of Electric. contrast Ted Kennedy, who had been in the Senate for 25, 30 years. Oh, right. um, you know, one of the stereotypes of government is that it's bureaucratic and nothing gets done. But Ted Kennedy, both through his relationships and through his experience, was able to get a ton of stuff done for Massachusetts, bring a ton of money to Massachusetts as well. Um, and then the kind of contrast of Jesse the Body Ventura, who was an ex-Navy SEAL and WWE wrestler. Right, right. And seeing their different approaches, but his general, his general philosophy towards public service was actually not that much different he yeah. he he believed in individuals you know seeking happiness he believed in gay marriage and that was in 2000 2003 mm. um so you know on the grand scheme of political spectrum that's pretty early yeah, for where he was um too. and just learning about different approaches to a same goal which is to help people through government uh, was pretty inspiring for me so long story short i ended up in consulting for a little bit working in nonprofit profit booze hamilton dc went to business school after business school, um, ended up working for Mayor Menino here in Boston as his advisor. Um, Menino, uh, Menino had been, was mayor for 20 years. Um, I was eight years old when Mayor Menino first got elected. So being able to work alongside him was pretty cool. Um, and, and learning that uh, was, was an experience to see firsthand how, again, a very experienced politician whose heart was in the right place was really making a difference in Boston. Mm -hmm. You know, people who knew Menino, obviously, he was very universally respected and he got a lot done. Yep. Um, and so for me, it was, okay, how do I transfer those skills to the private sector and learn to, to be effective? And, and, and what, are, what are private sector equivalent industries that can really make a difference and inspire social change? And one of those, I thought, was, was media. So um, the one-year fellowship with Mayor Menino was ending. Uh, heard that uh, Ariana Huffington was looking for a chief of staff. Ended up going to New York, working for the Huffington Post for a couple of years. And seeing a leader like Ariana, who first of all is is whip smart and incredibly mm -hmm. intuitive business wise, then also similar to how you saw it streetwise, redefining how how media works, especially online. Yeah. At the time, uh, the traffic on the site was outpacing, well outpacing that of the New York Times, well yeah. outpacing CNN. HuffPost DC had more traffic than CNN's political coverage, so pretty significant. Learned a lot about how that industry was changing. It's wild. Had no intention of coming back, um, but uh, tell us a little bit about working for Ariana. <laughs> That's good. Ariana was an incredibly smart, um, very high, high standard leader, mm -hmm. um, and one of her biggest strengths was that she always saw where the puck was going. Yeah. Always. Yeah. Um, and so there were many times where she'd come up with all kinds of ideas and say, "You know, Dan, we're not doing enough about sleep, <laughs> and like we needed to figure out how we start the sleep section." You know, um, and people would look at her funny and say, "Like, why are we talking about sleep?" And now, like, sure enough, you know, now eight years later, everyone's talking about burnout and wellness and, and all this and stuff. Like you know, all, yeah. and she was way ahead of her time mm -hmm. on that. And so for me, it was a really interesting lesson of. You know, obviously you can have a leader with good business sense that that's fine, but having that vision and having that ability to see that puck, 
drive a team to that vision mm-hmm. really important and ariana did that over and over and over again right yeah. so like was she someone who understood inherently how traffic arrived to a site how eyes came to clickable headlines like maybe not off the bat but she knew right. the right people who who could do that right and she had the vision of how to create the content around that yeah right? so she created the brand she created the brand she pioneered the whole you know uh blogger platform in exchange for eyeballs people being on the platform especially early on yeah it was the greatest free marketing possible right you know it's like think about tesla now elon musk doesn't spend a dollar on marketing right, right. it's just all word of mouth right. so for her you know her, her concoction was let's create a platform that had incredible scale and i'll get all of my friends and my friends friends to be able to blog and they'll all tell everyone hey come to the huffington post and read my piece and, right um it was brilliant and it which worked. at the time people didn't do like i remember larry david and alec right. ball like random people showing up on huffington post and at the time celebrities didn't blogging wasn't like cool right, right and then it became like a cool thing and we were getting mentored by some of the tech people at huffington post and we got Obviously, he didn't write it, but the thing that kind of changed our trajectory was Menino wrote a blog post for Boseno. There you go about yeah. uh, the innovation district, yeah, as it used to be called. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And 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 as you probably experienced with some of the guest blogs you had on Boseno and what we saw on Huffington Post was that there was so, there was really fascinating meritocracy that came with content mm-hmm. that a single mother in Philadelphia telling a story about how. She lost housing and had to figure out how to survive on the streets with her child, which was a blog that we had, um, had more page views than a post by Barack Obama. Yeah, right. right. It was all about how compelling the story was and how it touched people. Right. And, and actually was, was, was helpful in determining what this next generation of digital media and how you get eyes on a paper. Mm-hmm. Right. Candidly, I still think a lot of legacy print outlets haven't figured this out. Yeah, right. Totally. If you look at vast majority of op-eds in you know, any of the more recent publication, any of these legacy publications, it's all elites, right? It's people who are leaders of think tanks, or it's people who are, you know, leaders of industry, but very rarely is there someone who's able to tell a compelling story. Do they give access to people who are actually feeling these things, which I think is a huge opportunity, but I I digress. Um, (laughs) Looking to get back into media? (laughs) What's that? (laughs) Can you, um, we're picking up every time you tap. Um, And so I was there, Really enjoying it. Um, ended up becoming general manager of HuffPost Live, mm. which is uh, which was another uh, incredible platform ahead of its time. You know, now every uh, every media outlet is having their own dedicated streaming network. But so that was live streaming video. It was live streaming video uh, in 2013. Yeah, um, seven a.m. to like se- four years early. Seven a.m. to seven p.m. Anybody watching could request to join the segment at any given time. Everything was done through Google Hangouts. So it was literally like it is right now in the pandemic. Right. Um, really fascinating model. Uh, you know, eight hours in New York, four hours in LA. Do the switch over, I think, at like, you know, 5 p.m. or something like that. Yeah. Um, but ahead of its time and, and not enough eyeballs like on oriented towards that kind of thing to make it to make it as, as, uh, as enduring from a business model perspective as possible. Right. But, but at the time, really enjoying it. Um, and, out of nowhere, Mayor Menino, again, who had been run, who had run for five terms, announced he wasn't running again. Marty Walsh, who I didn't know at all, uh, decided to run. One, again, tangentially knew of him, but didn't expect anything. Um, and then just got a call from Menino's chief of staff saying that uh, he was looking for a chief of staff and wondering if passed on the resume. So I said, like, yeah, absolutely, I'd love it, but 
you know, 99% of the time. The How'd they identify you from Huffington Post to chief of staff of City of Boston? Yeah, so I worked for uh, a mentor who's still a mentor of mine, Mitch Weiss, who was Menino's mm-hmm. chief of staff. I remember Mitch. He uh, was good to Boston. Oh, that's right. That's <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, um, And uh, he, I told him, you know, and this is a good life lesson that I thankfully had learned before talking to him is, you know, if you have an ambition of doing something like, you know, half the battle is being able to be confident enough to say that you want to do something. Right. And so for me, I said to Mitch very early on, like, I want to be a chief of staff. Mm-hmm. How do, how do I do that? You know, yep. teach me how to do that. And so he gave me the opportunity to, to, to get more experience that would lend itself to that. But then also it was just in the back of his mind. So when the time came, he said, you know, uh, mayor Walsh is still looking for a chief of staff. This was November of 2013 and he was starting January of 2014. Hmm. So you said, turnaround time. so you said, do you want me to pass on your resume? I said, yeah, sure. But you know, I, not percent of the time, the campaign manager or something else, he ends up being the chief of staff. So I, I really wasn't optimistic. Yep. So I emailed him, didn't, didn't hear back. And then another lesson that I've, that I've thankfully learned most of the hard way is just being persistent, especially with busy people. Yep. So I emailed him again and he responded, uh, putting me in touch with his assistant and we ended up meeting, um, in, in December, December 17th. But I later learned that he hadn't seen the first email I'd sent him. The second time he was literally in church on his knees praying because he didn't have a chief of staff and he thought he was in trouble. Mm. And then he left church and opened up his email and my follow-up was at the top of his inbox. Yeah. And like, if you asked him the story, he'll tell you the same thing. And yeah. I, I, it's just a lesson that like following up is important. Right, right. <laughs> um, so I met him um, and, uh, and uh, was going up to the room to meet him and I was all nervous. I had no idea what he was going to ask me. He was going to ask me about you know, Boston policy, housing policy, economic policy, all that stuff. So I had read all this stuff, hoping that he wouldn't ask me about it right. and pick up my, you know, whatever I was trying to invent. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, he had saw my resume that I worked for the New England Patriots, which I did for a summer in their marketing department. Yeah. Um, and he's a season ticket holder. <laughs> so he started asking me about the Patriots, what I thought, blah, blah, blah. Um, and uh, it seemed to be compelling enough to him that he realized that he could have a rapport yeah. um, and that it would work well. And then we got into whole discussion about young people in Boston. That's what really hooked me to him mm-hmm. was because, you know, for me as someone who grew up in the Boston area, who cares a lot about this city, um, I was kind of a example of someone who grew up in the city and then left and went right. to New York. Right. And he like took it personally and, and wanted to understand why and what we could do, you know, to, to better retain young talent. Mm-hmm. And I saw firsthand, A, how much he cared about that and understood that as the lifeblood of the city long term. Um, and then B, which is another passion of mine that I picked up through my work at, at, at HuffPost, how we can use data to better serve constituents, right? And, and as HuffPost was incredibly data-driven, you know, historically journalists and journalism and data were like, you know, yeah. Chinese wall kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, right. Um, but now uh, that's obviously something that's been completely redefined by what Huffington Post pioneered. Um, and so he was really excited about how we would bring that to the city. And uh, so one thing led to another and he offered me the job on... Uh, Monday and his swearing in was on a Wednesday. Huh. So I was in, huh. I was in, and you New live York. in New York. I was living in New York. Yeah. And he's like, I'm sorry to do this. Well, I'm not sorry to give you the job. Yeah. Right. But like my inauguration's like this day, can you come? And I was <laughs> like, okay. Um, so that was, that was a whirlwind came up, came in for his inauguration, like just completely overwhelmed. But um, long story short, four years of, of incredible, incredible experience being in city hall. He is a, genuine leader in all of the right ways mm. um 
a guy who is late to most meetings because he's too busy talking to people and really mm-hmm. wanting to understand who they are. Yeah. Interrupting meetings because he's a recovering alcoholic and someone in his AA meeting is having trouble and he wants to take the time to talk to him. Mm-hmm. Um, literally the most down to earth guy I, I've, I've ever met, especially yeah, yeah. relative to his you know, position. Um, and one of the things that I'm most proud of um, in that in the time I was working with him is that we came up with this new system of service delivery in Boston called City Score. Mm-hmm. Um, the idea being that every single thing from a service delivery perspective that we deliver in Boston should be measured. We should have goals to that measurement and we should rate ourselves constantly on it. Right. right. So everything from how quickly we clean up graffiti to how quickly we fill a pothole, et cetera. Um, sounds very elementary, especially in the private sector, but in the public sector, revolutionary. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's kind of crazy that they, yeah. When I first heard you talk about that project, I was like, they didn't have that shit already. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, and, and it's wild. You know, part of it is cultural, right? Like, yeah, for sure. It, when you when you take over for a mayor who'd been there twenty years, no disrespect to Mayor Menino, but twenty years in yeah. a, in an office, people have ingrained habits, right? Um, but secondly, we we actually saw the kind of behavior change that came with saying, "Okay, we're a new administration." It gave us permission to install something new, yeah, um, and and allow people to get on board in a way they otherwise wouldn't. And people got really competitive in a healthy way. We, you know, Boston has a veteran services department. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of this, one of the things we, we rated was how many calls to veterans they were doing a day. Yep. And the, the person in charge of the call center was so excited about beating her score from the day before that she would motivate all the people to do Which that. is like unheard of in, at least in the eyes of people in terms of like how government. Sure. And, and, you know, we gave yeah. the whole system, we put a big green monster looking scoreboard in the mayor's office. Nice. And so yeah. anyone who came in knew the mayor was looking at it. Then all the cabinet chiefs wanted their own scoreboards because they thought it was cool looking and all yeah, that stuff. Yeah, so yeah. Um, that, was, that was a really great experience. And the mayor, you know, was somebody who was a leader on that. He, he fulfilled his promise that he said to me he would, that he really cared about it. Um, yeah. And so it was really kind of the money ballization of service delivery. And there was a bunch of statistics, everything from how quickly... Um, fire engines were getting to the scene to how quickly we were filling our potholes that went up in the positive direction as a result of the initiative. And we also were trying to really focus on how we make technology personal. So um, it, it, there's a Boston 311 app that you can download. Mm-hmm. And if you see a picture of a pothole in Boston now, if you take a photo of that pothole, not only do you get a picture back of the filled pothole, but you also get a picture of the team that filled it. Uh, so cool. the idea being that like this is residents helping residents and this right. is the community. Um, and, and that little feedback loop allowed people to, you know, you talk about retention of a customer, right? Yeah. Um, make them more likely to do it again and again. Yeah. Um, and so there were a lot of things that, that happened over those four years that were, were tremendous. Um, but, uh, but that was something that I was particularly proud of. So how do you figure out you, uh, you get the call Monday and then you become <laughs> chief of staff on Wednesday yeah. of a major American city, major global corporations, population in and out every year in a state that's you know a wealthy prosperous state yeah how do you know how to like what's the day-to-day and how do you know how to do that when you hadn't previously been achieved like yeah did you in other walks of life you start as chief of staff it, it you started something at a lower level yeah. and you kind of work your way up yeah. so what was the day to day and how did you learn to do it? Well, first of all, it's, it's an interesting system that we have. I mean, obviously it's a great system. Democracy and the way people get elected is, mm-hmm. is, is fundamental to the United States. Mm-hmm. Objectively though, especially for mayors and especially in Boston, a strong mayor system, mm-hmm. it's not easy 
when someone's, ele- you know, Marty Walsh was a state rep before he was mayor. Right. And all of a sudden he sprung into a role where he's literally CEO with all the typical powers of a CEO, really without a board of directors, managing <laughs> $3 billion budget at the time and 18,000 employees, right? So that's an adjustment for anybody. Yeah, sure. Uh, that would be an adjustment for, you know, the, yeah. the CEO of Mass Mutual to come in and do that, right? Yeah. But for somebody who, you know, their typical, um, you know, their typical representation as a state rep is in the tens of thousands, all of a sudden now it's a significant jump. Um, you know, I think it's taking things one step at a time and mm-hmm. understanding, you know, what are the core beliefs that drive um, the person. And for Mayor Menino, there was a m- number of things that he did well in the city, but the thing that he's most remembered for is he was just everywhere. And he yeah. cared and yep. he was in front of people and the services were delivered on time. Right. Garbage was picked up, creative was cleaned up. And I think we just started from there. I think both of us had our had knowledge of the fact that there was going to be a ton of stuff that we didn't know, a ton of mistakes that we we're going to make. But that as long as we kept core, the tenant that he would be out there working his butt off and that we would have a solid system of service delivery that we would be okay. Yeah. Um and, and it built from there. But you know, it wasn't without its growing pains. You know, I I remember the first day after mayor's first day of meetings, he was just sitting there like, you know, exhausted from the implications, not only of the day, but of what the rest of his four years would be. <laughs> um, but he took to it really well. And look, after four years, he was elected with 30% margin. Um, yeah. You know, his approval rating continues to be 70, 75 plus percent. Um, obviously, COVID is something I didn't have to deal with as a chief yeah. of staff, but um, you know, from all measurements subjectively of how he's performed there, people are very happy with it. And again, he's he's a great leader from a business perspective, but what, what really drives him is his core personality and how he approaches people on the individual level. And I think it all has to stem from there. And I think he's he's definitely got that. Yeah, he's a, uh, I've gotten to meet him a couple of times through you and he's funny. I remember the first time I met him and we brought Dan on board at HQO, you know, I'm shaking his hand assuming you know he's the mayor of boston they're just formal small talk and he goes i can't believe you didn't do a reference check on this guy (laughs) (laughs) i'm just uh, it's the first thing he said to me i'm like cracking up yeah he's a funny guy yeah yeah. um can i jump in for one sec please what um is there a job description for chief of staff yeah like like what is uh, you've done it twice like what is it just you put that on one sheet of paper and you basically just say yes to everything. Like what is, what's in there? Well, actually it's a good, it's a good point because when I was working with Ariana and I had later posted my, my job with Ariana, I had put up a little job description. And when I met with the mayor, I brought that job description with me just to show that I had done some kind of advanced work Mm -hmm. and I, you know, try to show that at least I acted like I knew what I was doing. I didn't really, obviously. Um, but I think there's a couple of buckets, and I don't think it's that dissimilar from being chief operating officer of a company, right? You have a clear, you have an executive who's clearly the executive who has a competing priorities in his or her time, a a clear vision, ideally, on where he or she wants to see things go, and then ideally, you all, that leader also welcomes thoughtful feedback from a chief of staff or a chief operating officer, right? Um, and so, I think the biggest the biggest uh, job requirement is having the understanding of when to listen and when to push back and then understand how then to translate the words you're hearing from the executive into a, a, a go forward plan with action items, right? And so whether it's in a startup or whether it's in City Hall, it's how do you maximize the executive's time on the issues that matter the most? How do you take off the plate the things that are less, not necessarily less important, but less 
urgent for the requirement of the executive's time. Mm -hmm. And then there's another bucket, which is just care and custody of the executive, right? So, you know, I, I won't get into the things that Chase talks to me about that has nothing to do with work, <laughs> but the mayor would sometimes just want someone to talk to, right? Like it's a very lonely job because there's a lot of decisions made in a given day that are only his to make. Um, and, you know, whether he wants to talk about whether the Patriots had a good game the day before or whether he talks about whether we want to invest $10 million in, you know, a new housing policy, you have to be prepared to understand like where that person's head is at in a given day and then adjust the way you manage up to that person um, accordingly. And so um, if you're able to handle both the rapport side and the execution side well, I think you can be an effective chief of staff. And I don't, I don't, to your, to your question earlier, Chase, I don't think you necessarily need a ton of experience within City Hall to do that, yeah. as long as you understand that dynamic and do it well. Mm -hmm. um, the, the people I've seen in chief of staff roles who don't succeed, it's more because they don't necessarily understand the dynamic of when to push back yeah when to when to um you know how and what cadence you manage the action items that are on the person's plate mm -hmm. and candidly like make sure you just don't annoy the person yeah right right, right. because at the end of the day if that rapport doesn't work nothing else yeah, works totally. if, the tr if the trust isn't there nothing else works so what about the eighteen thousand people in city hall though yeah. like dan's humble and he won't mention like harvard undergrad hbs and you come flying up from New York 48 hours before you take office. And there are people who are lifers there, right? Yep, yep. And they're used to doing things a certain way. We see this in property management and commercial real estate, sure. right? Like they don't, you're going to measure what I'm doing. Yeah. You know? Yeah. <laughs> like how, how did you manage that? Yeah. You know, I think there's plenty of people in City Hall who probably wouldn't say good things. So I don't know. If, I, don't know I, have, I don't know if I have the best advice, but I think. I, but is there any scenario, though, where a new chief of staff comes in and you get all you can't get all 18? You can't get all of them. Like. But I think first, I think it needs to come from a mentality of respect. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I deeply respect somebody who, who shows up to City Hall every day and finds great and, and they do they they don't do it for the salary because the salary certainly isn't the reason but the but the work is very very gratifying mm -hmm. right um you know helping someone get a moving permit when they're struggling and they need to have it for the weekend because something happened like that's very fulfilling you know um the people who work in the registrar and are helping people get their you know um you know various you know, birth certificates or what have you for something critical is very fulfilling yep um and so first of all just having that respect is, i think is really important um, I think the second thing is you, you kind of have to make a decision very early on as to whether you approach the job from one of, I have a lot to learn and I need to spend the time to, to, to learn and then suggest things to do mm -hmm. versus like, you know, th there's another route that you could take, which is I'm 29 years old. People are going to look at me like I'm the young kid in the room unless I assert myself. And so right. I should create this culture around like respect by fear or respect by, you know, intimidation. But I was realistic enough to, and first of all, I was 29, I looked like I was 22. <laughs> yeah, right. And, and no one would take me seriously. And they would just say, like, this kid doesn't understand. Like, you know. Yeah. Um, and so I think combining those kind of things, it was, it was spending the first few months of the job probably, probably taking too much that I should have pushed back on, but trying to take the time to get the social credibility that I was there to learn and listen. Mm -hmm. I would have ideas, but, you know, especially in the beginning, you're sitting with someone who's been working snowplows for 25 years. 
you know, they, I come in and say, Hey, I saw this HBS case on how to optimize, you know, snow removal. Can you read it and get back to me next week? You know, they, they tell me things that I shouldn't say on podcasts. Right? So, um, I think that's really important. Optimizing snow removal. That is definitely a, a thesis paper of an HBS graph. And, and, what, and what was great though, is like, because Mayor Walsh had so much credibility with that group of people right. from the neighborhood, he yeah. grew up, he's a union well leader. Known, yeah. The, the the rapport that we had was strong and therefore I had credibility with that group. Right? Yep. And the mayor used to always say like he loved us together in a room because we were the odd couple, right? Like I, <laughs> you know, I was this, uh, I was this kid from the suburbs. He was from Dorchester. Like we had very different upbringings, but our, our way we viewed the world and our approach towards people, I would like to think was very similar. So, yeah. you know, he would always like to say that like, there wasn't a person in the room that one of us couldn't relate to in a certain way. Yeah. Right? yeah. Um, and uh, I think I kind of operated from that perspective. I mean, again, I, there, there's probably plenty of people in City Hall who wouldn't say good things. And I, I, I'm, I regret that. I'm, I'm sorry for that. Yeah. Um, but again, I think I knew that I had a ton to learn. And like there was a guy who was the director of public works. He wasn't when I came in. Then he became director of public works. Then he is now the town manager of Milton. This guy, Mike Dennehy, mm -hmm. um, one of the most brilliant guys I've ever worked with. Super sharp. And just new public works in and out. He could tell you everything from, you know, how how much a, a one of those typical garbage cans you see on the street would be, and how hmm. to get the best deal on them, <laughs> to to like how to deal with the um, different different town public works yard operators, right? Like what the best way to do it was, and like he was the key to doing data right because he was the classic example of like the Billy Bean. Yeah, guy. he was the database. Yeah. It's just all in his head. But and he but he could also he could operate an Excel spreadsheet, he can operate a snow removal truck. Yeah. And and he had the credibility to do both. Right. And so when we were doing this entire initiative in City Hall, it was all about who are those people in each of those different departments mm -hmm. and how can we work with them so that they are on board. Right. Versus like if I'd gone in there the first day and been like, hey man, here's how you know it yeah, yeah. wouldn't have worked. Right. 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 Um and so you know, I was, I was very proud of those relationships I built, you know, fire chief and I were, are great friends and continue to be good friends. And it's, it just comes from a place of mutual respect. And that was the coolest part about city hall is that, you know, if you're in a room with the mayor's cabinet of 12, 14 people, or you're in a department heads meeting, which is, I think there are 70 department heads in the city. Like there isn't wow. in that room, there is somebody who's a subject matter expert in pretty much anything. And they've done yeah. their entire lives on it. Right. So, you know, Joe Finn, is was the fire chief he just recently retired but man just sitting and picking his brain about what it was like to come up the ranks as a fire his former marine yeah amazing american hero comes in joins the firefighters like a lot of veterans do mm -hmm. you know went up through the academy has seen you know r tough hardships of losing people and fires over the years had to make decisions in the past about whether to pull out men even though there are other people in the building for the safety of you know yeah these decisions that like I will never, uh, you know, uh, these decisions that I can't even imagine having to do in real time. Right. That was the most gratifying thing was just to learn from all of these people. And yeah. I think if you go in with that mentality, I think your odds of being successful in building rapport are obviously can be successful as well. Right. My one, uh, my second Mayor Walsh story after the first time I met him, I, Dan had uh, wrote me into a fundraiser <laughs> where I met him. You know, I donated, I think, a little bit of money, nothing nothing at all that would stand out. And I lived in Southie at the time. And I remember it was so strange because 
it's like 7 a.m. in the morning. My wife and I are running around doing stuff, trying to get ready. I forget if my first son, I forget what year it was. Um, he couldn't have been born yet. So we were just you know, doing our morning routine, getting ready to head to work. And I get a phone call from an unknown number. And I never answer unknown numbers. Like never. Particularly like 7.15, whatever time it was in the morning. I don't do it. I don't know why, but I answered and I'm like, hello. And voice on the other end is, you know, is uh, Marty Walsh. Doesn't say Mayor Walsh. This is Marty Walsh. Uh, is this Chase? And I'm kind you know, it's, I don't like talking to people in the morning, period. But I was kind of like, I think I said, bullshit, who is this? <laughs> like, I, I, I think that was exactly my, like, who's prank? Like, is this a prank? Is this like, you trying to, is this like some scam where he's going to be like, you owe money for your property taxes or whatever? You need to wire me at this address right yeah, now. Yeah, right. Send, send the check to, yeah. you know. Uh, and the, he kind of chuckles. He's like, nah, this is, this is Marty. And I'm like, yeah, man, sure. And I'm, and I like, I, I don't know what I said. Like, yeah, and I'm the Pope or whatever. And he's laughing. He's like, this is Mayor Walsh. We, sh we know, I know Dan Coe. And he starts talking and I'm listening to the voice. I'm like, are you, are you serious? <laughs> he's like, yes. And I'm like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. I cursed twice. And he's just laughing. He's like, yeah. I was like, is there something I can do for you? Do you need something from me? He's like, no, I just want to call and say thanks. And I'm like, I like I, it, it kind of blew me away because who calls somebody at 7.30 in the morning who, you know, I was one of many people at the event. And then, of course, I, you know, I cursed on the phone and uh, he was cool about it. <laughs> he was, he just laughed it off, talked to me for two or three minutes. And my wife, I hang up, my wife comes out and she's like, She's like, who's trying to scam you saying there, Mayor Walsh? She could be overhear me. So naturally, she thought it was a scam, too. There's no way the mayor of Boston is calling me at 7 in the morning. Yeah. So, yeah, those were my first two interactions with the mayor. I've kept it in the fairway since, <laughs> which is good. No, I mean, that's but that's a typical him story. I mean, he he drove me crazy because he'd give his cell phone number out to everybody. Everyone <laughs> would text him directly on stuff that they shouldn't be texting him on. Mm -hmm. But the, the the beautiful thing about him, and I mean this genuinely, is that we all around him were like this ridiculous, but for him, he'd think it were ridiculous not to give out his cell phone. Oh, he's such a normal guy. He's just like not interested his, in yeah. the pomp and circumstance. Uh, he's not interested like in sending, you know, talk to my people, like none of that yeah. stuff, yeah. you know? Um, and it's, it's disarming, but then when you, the more you spend time with him, you say to yourself, shit, like he actually is like this. This yeah. is not an act. This is not, and like, no, it's not. I think he has to try to act like a politician because right. he's such yeah. a normal guy. Yeah. Yeah. That's why I vote for, like, literally, the pomp and circumstance, as you know, you know me well now, drives me crazy. Yeah. And he's he's got none of it. Well, I mean, you know, so uh, I'm a Democrat, and uh, we'll talk about the Congress thing if you want, but um, he he is obviously a proud Democrat, but he cares about helping people first and foremost, beyond yeah. party, beyond everything. Yeah. And so, A, I saw that in all the little things that he did, but B, he and Governor Baker continue to have a very good relationship and and it's not because the mayor agrees with him politically right but because the mayor is not a grandstander he's never mm -hmm. has been and he and he could have taken the approach oh this is a republican so every time baker says something i'm going to say no because i'm a democrat or whatever but i saw firsthand his his ability to work with governor baker to help people help yep. more people in the city of boston right bring more economic development in the city of boston all that and and i think that that leadership is is getting rarer these days mm -hmm. and it's and it's much more about 
what you can say on social media that gets more, most retweets yeah. versus what you're actually doing to help people. Right. And the mayor has just never fallen into no, that trap. That's not He's his, just never done. That's not his bag, which is great. Yeah. And it's not really Baker's bag either. He's yeah. not a, a loud promoter. We're lucky that the two of them behave the way that they do in today's day and age. But let's talk about Congress. So, <laughs> Yeah, so I was lucky that I had a boss who I could talk to him about you know, where I wanted my career to go at some point, and, and he mm-hmm. was very supportive. And so um, I'm from Andover. I grew up in Andover, and uh, Andover's in the third district of Massachusetts. Actually, it's split between two districts, which later I learned the hard way. It was hurting to make an election. <laughs> um, but I grew up in the third district. And yeah. uh, Nikki Songus, who had been the representative for 10 years, um, and and her her um, husband previously to that, had Paul Songus, had also been representative, um, announced that she was retiring in August of 2017. And, um, you know, a lot, any any elected official or wannabe elected official who tells you they never thought they'd be an elected official or they never wanted to, is completely and utterly lying to you. Right? <laughs> um, and, and, and so this notion of, like, oh, you know, I never thought I'd be, you know, you, you obviously have to give it some thought if you're going yeah. to launch something of that skip. People don't just write you in. With, right, yeah. right, right, right. <laughs> And so, and so I, I knew this was something I wanted to do because yeah. I candidly had seen a lot of effective people who were in it for the right reasons do a lot of good. Mm-hmm. And I had seen from further away, thankfully, people who had not been in it for the right reasons doing a bunch of nothing. So I, I, um, as, soon as, as soon as she announced that she was retiring, um, with the blessing of the mayor, I stepped down from my post, came back to Andover, where I'd li- been living in Boston because I was required to live in Boston as part of being chief of staff. Um, and uh and just started to go and just decided to run um it was the it was an amazing year and a half um met some incredible people from from across the district uh the third district is 37 cities and towns mm. um it spans from Haverhill in the Merrimack Valley all the way to Gardner uh, to in central Massachusetts really interesting unique stories in each municipality you know Gardner was a chair manufacturing city for a very long time, mm. produced amazing quality chairs, was, you know, booming as a city. And then obviously through globalization and everything, everything moved overseas. They lost a ton of their business. They're still the chair city. I think there's still a couple of chair vendors there. Yeah. Um, but, you know, really interesting economic situation that they have and um, challenging that it's the reason why you have federal representation is to try to help th- those those communities in transition and um, fascinating also to see the kind of bonds that came from the community as a result of having this history and all that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was a 15 way primary, uh, which was 15. interesting. Wow. Uh, I think we originally had 15 candidates. There were 10 that ended up being on the ballot. I didn't even know any of this previously, but, um, you, uh, you have to get a certain number of signatures to get on the ballot. That's you're officially on the ballot. Um, and then, you know, how you build a coalition and how you win is really up to you. Right. Yeah. Um, and so, we were really, really focused, and, and not to get too political on the show, but as a, as a Democrat, um, my my family is only possible as a result of thoughtful immigration policy. Mm-hmm. Um, and so my grandfather grew up in an island off the coast of South Korea called Cheju. Um, he was literally a, a son. Uh, he was literally a child of a fishing village through just grit and hustle, made it to the mainland of Korea to attend what is now Seoul National University, which is mm-hmm. the best university in Korea. But for him, that was not good enough and hustled to end up in the United States. Um, at one point, actually, the government in Korea was overthrown 
he didn't believe in the government. They offered him a high power position if he basically just kind of like sold out and he refused to do it. Um, he ended up temporarily actually before that government being ambassador to the U.S. from Korea and then was exiled as a result of the turnover in government. Yep. Um, and so it was a real inspiration for me. Um, and, and so that's on my, my grandfather's side. On my mother's side, um, her grandparents were Lebanese immigrants, came to the United States, again, thoughtful immigration policy. So um, I haven't met too many Lebanese Korean people in the <laughs> world, but it's an example. Everyone has their story of a United States where their, their family came to a welcoming United States. And I simply just felt like this entire environment was not what the America that allowed my family to be possible was. And that, 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 that I took that personally, everything from healthcare to, to jobs, economy, education. Uh, and so ran on that platform. Uh, we, we, we put together an incredible team. I had an incredible campaign manager. Um, we blitzed the district. Long story short, um, on election night, uh, you know, you kind of sit in a room and just wait back. It's a very bizarre feeling because you've done all this work and the only thing you can do is wait. Um, and, uh, uh, we were, we were not cocky, but we were, we were feeling good about our chances. Mm -hmm. Um, and one thing led to another, we started up. Um, and then as the night progressed, we ended up at about, I forgot what it was, what time it was, but midnight or something with a 41 vote margin. Um, and so there were about 88, 89,000 votes. So that was like a 0.058% right. margin. Um, and the, and this is appropriate today because this is the day after election day, the trigger is typically a 1% margin or in the, or in Massachusetts, right. a 0.5% margin. Mm. This was 0.05% margin. Wow. Um, and so long story short, we had a recount, all 37 cities and towns, um, you know, objectively a fascinating experience, not fun when you're behind. Yeah. Right. Um, but, uh, but, but, you know, it, it is, it is hard it is amazing enough when you see all these people who support you when you're running. It's even more amazing when it's clear that your back's up against the wall and, you know, recounts almost never have uh, an overturn to this. Yeah, it right. almost never happens. And so I, I was, I was, I knew in my heart that it was probably not going to work out. Um, but to have all these people there, have all these people uh, be there for me and, and, and ended up the margin, which wasn't surprising, ended up getting a little bigger. So I think it was like 0.1% instead of 0 0.05, yeah. whatever. But uh, that ended up ending, and and um, still an amazing experience. I don't I don't regret it at all, and 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 love the people I met, and still to this day, despite seeing government in many different ways, like I've never been more optimistic about our future, and never been more optimistic about what good public servants can do. Mm -hmm. um, but you know, was it was a, actually a very naked feeling experience for me because I had been heads down for a year and a half you know, laser focused on this goal, a goal that I had in the back of my mind for a long time. And then all of a sudden the, the campaign ends and like, you just have no, I had no plan. I had no idea right. what I was going to do next. I wasn't you can't planning. really have a plan if you're no. going to run for Like you can't have a fallback because right. then you're probably not the right person for the job. Right. Exactly. <laughs> so I said, okay, I have no job. I have no income. I, I spent the last year not taking an income. Yeah, you don't make I'm, a lot of money campaign. No. Um, and so, so there was no job. First and foremost, I cared about the 20 people who had worked on my team that I wanted to find jobs. Right. Thankfully, because of their work on the campaign and because the margin was so close, they were able to then go and get jobs very quickly in other races for the general. So it was great. You know, my, I'm very proud that uh, you know, my campaign manager is now chief of staff to a congressperson. Um, my digital director was the digital director for Tony Evers, who's now the governor of Wisconsin. And now he literally controls Joe Biden's social media account. 
Oh, so like he could literally tweet like I'm dropping out and, yeah, and, yeah, right. and there's like no check. Or, Come on, man. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, but after that, you know, I, I thought to myself, okay, like this is both really devastating and mentally trying, but also yeah. an opportunity to really um, uh, uh, pursue a passion and to um, really make, make an impact in the way that I really wanted to. And, yeah. you know, Chase, you and I had met multiple times through Boston and what have you. And one of the kind of themes that kind of went through my career was how we use technology to improve the world and and bring it to an area that badly needs it, right? And it was actually through TJ Mahoney, um, who I connected with through Papatiti, who both of us know from Catalan, um, who said, hey, you should, and obviously I, I knew you, but um, he said like, hey, Chase is working on something really cool. You should talk. Yeah. And then I remember us meeting, I think at the Roach Brothers in downtown Cross. <laughs> And uh Roches for closers, my man. No, it was awesome. First of all, first of all, you closed me in a very effective way. You you had you had appropriate you had appropriate finesse where you didn't you didn't put too much pressure. You were kinda like, Hey, you can get on this rocket ship and like, you know, it'd be a great experience for you and it's gonna be awesome. Or you could not. It's just really your call. It's gonna be a rocket <laughs> ship either way, but it's up to you. Um and, and But you had a lot of I mean, yeah, a lot of so TJ Mahoney's an investor at Accomplice, who's one of our backers, and I do remember he pinged me. I forget what he said, but he was like, "Do you know that Co is a free agent?" And I was like, "Well, I was a supporter of the campaign. I'm a registered independent, and you, I saw you multiple times engage very respectfully with people from different parties and things." And I was like, "Yeah, I like that. I don't really. I mean, you know me well enough now that I'm my, I'm, a, I'm best." categorized as contrarian in my <laughs> political views from yeah uh, that's fair yeah so um which i think people just find annoying but uh i was like you know he's not a he, you the way you conducted yourself i was like obviously you have to be pretty smart to be chief of staff at 29 of the city of boston and we had spoken a little bit about city score and like how tech could change not just government but cities right like yeah. and how people engage and i yeah. think that was what we originally kind of riffed on at roach brothers yeah where i was like you know here's where i see this being not just software for buildings but ultimately as buildings become pieces of technology and much more modernized what the you know the impact on cities starts to become yeah i believe that was the general first conversation even though we were probably in like four buildings yeah yeah, yeah. but i didn't know we were in four buildings you said we, we, you were in a significant footprint or something like that so. and that's all relative <laughs> man you know yeah. gotta sell the dream yeah. no but it, but it you know obviously you know this and for people listening you gotta you gotta believe it in your core you gotta it's yeah. gotta touch something in you yep. right um and in this case a combination of bringing technology to an area and industry that i think sorely needed it Yep. But then B, I, you know, I genuinely believe that HQO's mission of, of real world experiences of bringing people together in person will make people happier yeah. and make people's lives better and allow people to enjoy their workplace better. I mean, the, the whole point, and Chase, you and I have talked about this a lot, the whole point of an office is to promote in-person collaboration. Mm -hmm. And you and I have talked about this endlessly over the course of the last seven months. You can't recreate that over Zoom or, or Google Hangout. Right. Right. And like the way people learn and the way people develop and the way cultures come together to be greater than the sum of its parts 
it only happens when you're in person. Yeah. Um, and so I believe deeply in, in the, in, in what HQO was trying to accomplish, not just for commercial office buildings, but for the world. Right. Um, you know, there is, there is a time in the future where I see HQO being the app for cities or the app for countries or what have you and creating a better experience as a resident of a city as a result of that. Right. Mm -hmm. Where mayors say, we need this technology to be competitive as a city in the first you know, city that really embraces that kind of mentality is going to have a huge advantage, right? Yeah. In the same way that soon employees who are used to using HQO in their building are not going to want to work in a building that doesn't have it after they have it. Right. They're, you know, a, a constituent should demand having the technology to allow them to be best served by their city in their respective areas. Yeah. You know, and I think probably what was uh obvious early in conversations as you were thinking about joining hqo interested in your perspective but i think the two things that you and i had in common were number one uh i think we both have similar work well we're both lebanese we yeah. made that connection that helps yeah my mother and your mother um number two was we both kind of have the world view of um work is a good thing. Yep. Like we both are kind of like, I think you were raised hard work mentality and uh, like opportunities earned in a lot of ways. Right. Yep. Um, you were always very, the way you spoke about the opportunity to become chief of staff and these things at a young age was always very like thankful of the opportunity, not like, you know, I'm the man, like, uh, like there was a, I think we shared that in common and specifically like, technologies that can continue to make work more healthy, productive, effective, um, accessible yeah. is that's a very good cause. Number one. And then I think the second thing was we're both kind of cynical about the impacts that social media is having on yeah. like community. Right. And I talked a lot about to you, I was like, people sitting behind screens, we have this revolutionary technology that has um, made it easier to uh, hear from anyone and we're connecting with, you know, people with real relationships less and less, right? Yeah. And when you think about, like, cities and, you know, the I continually talk about Triumph in the City, which I think it's hilarious that you know the guy who wrote the book. Yeah. Um, cities are, like... Uh, humankind's greatest product, yeah, right, and bringing people together in an effective way is the best thing that you can do. And so, modernizing that experience through software and digital technologies, there's a lot of, I think, positive things that we could be doing. Whereas right now, we're sitting behind these addiction machines where we're just mindlessly scrolling through people yelling at each other. So. I thought we, we both shared at least the importance of the next wave of technology bringing people back together, I think. Yeah, and there's, there's no better example of, of the power of real connection and the value of it than some of the work that uh, I, my, one of my favorite professors in college was Robert Putnam, who wrote a book called Bowling Alone. Yeah. Um, and the general philosophy behind that Bowling Alone was that there's been, there hasn't been a decline in number of bowlers, but there's been a decline in number of bowling leagues. Right. And there's all kinds of research around if you can say that you have five to seven friends who you trust and you're in a, you know, you're, you're constantly in contact with and you believe in like all kinds of benefits from like your life being longer, all these things 
exist, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and he actually had this really interesting test case, I believe it was in Bellagio, Italy, of a city that was designed with a public square in which people would walk. It was designed so that people would walk by each other mm. all the time. And so the entire village got to know each other. Mm. And if you measure objectively on life expectancy, happiness, like it was one of the happiest places in the world. Right. Um, and social media, sadly, by and large, has done the opposite for us. Yeah. Right. You look at you know, all the data around people's levels of depression or anxiety or all these things as a result of feeling like they need to get that extra dopamine hit of the, you know, social dilemma, the, the, the documentary talked about this. Um, just making people feel more lonely and the, the complete opposite of what you would think a more interconnected world would be. Right. Right. And so if what we do can facilitate more of the kind of thing that makes people healthier, then in my mind, that's a, that's a noble mission. One that, you know, it is logical with commercial office buildings because commercial office buildings are mini communities. Yep. And if you can perfect that experience there, then there's no reason why you can't extend that to neighborhoods, cities, worlds, and I think therefore make the world a much better place than the kind of structure that we've created now where interconnectivity is equivalent um, virtually to in-person many times. Right. I think it's funny too, when you think about like the metrics of success for those systems are engagement, right? right. The, they have to keep you on platform longer. And when we talk to our customers, know landlords they all talk about metrics that when you think about some of the biggest problems facing people today inherently they're trying to design physical property to deal with some of those so we hear a lot about sustainability when we're talking to our customers they care deeply about sustainability um carbon footprint things like that we hear a lot about um health and wellness like how do you get people up and moving and active and um you know good fitness options at the property and a certain programming that connects people or educates them or whatever it is um and it's just it seems inherently that the the incentives are well aligned right yeah. to get you win if people are doing healthy things because their customers are looking for happy and healthy, pro- productive employees. Yep. So it on on the one hand, it seems easier because incentives are naturally aligned in the right way. Whereas the you know to be successful as Facebook, and I don't I don't think you can put the genie back in the bottle. They can't ever cut back on engagement and make more money. No. Right. Like yep. if you go from somebody using model. yeah six hours a day to four hours a day, I don't know how you make more money and growth in the public markets like no chance i don't know how you do that even when you just talk about like when you see all those fake bots on twitter and facebook like twitter gets crushed in a by the you know public equity markets because they don't have good user growth yeah you think they're gonna raise their hand and be like yeah 50 million of these people are also fake right like because we all know they're fake right but they can't afford to do that because they'll get crushed so i don't even know how I think until there's a better alternative for social engagement, which you're never going to get people off of phones and things like that. But I do think better alternatives that start to drive more community in real life engagement is the best way to combat it. And I think, you know, in the case of our clients being landlords, by and large, incentives are aligned, right? The the entire philosophy of commercial office buildings is that people are better and more effective together than they are isolated. 
right? Yeah. Um, and that's the entire model. And and same way with mayors, you know, Mayor Walsh doesn't want someone to move to Boston and sit in their apartment all day. They want them to get out, meet people, go to restaurants, all that stuff. And so, you know, the idea of building community and, you know, face-to-face in-person interaction being the lifeblood of that is something that I think we can, if we do our jobs right, facilitate effectively. And at the end of the day, if any of the research that people much smarter than you or I have done is the case that it's going to lead to a much happier population, whether it be in an office building or in a city or the world. Right. Right. Cities are the most interesting physical platforms that are perfectly designed for a digital, you know, twin of sorts, right? Where you can start to think of lots of different technologies that you should be in, that should facilitate the way that you engage in a city. It touches transportation, it touches, you talked a lot about the delivery of government services, but um, any physical store, location, or place, right? Like that's part of the experience of the city, whether you're going to a restaurant or whatever it is. Um, it touches, obviously, energy and sustainability, which we covered. But um, I think kind of when you think of the day in the life of what you do that isn't on social media, the city kind of hosts all of that, right? Yeah. It's yeah. just... There's a lot of lot to it's a big ball of yarn to pull apart, but if you start with the atomic unit of the building and build an effective interface for one building, then you can start to stitch those things together. Yeah. Yeah. And I think what's fascinating is again, even though we are becoming more and more technologically dependent on one another and, and on systems, it, it, it still becomes very clear that there's no replacement for the kind of in person relationships that help people live their lives better. Right? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I think of like some nonprofits that I really respect, like the Posse Foundation, right? They came up with a, with a, with a notion that, you know, certain people who are attending college are much more likely to stay and not drop out if they have a posse with them. Yeah. So they started to work with a group of colleges and said, you're not going to admit one, you're going to admit six. And those, those six will, will have a program around them so that they're constantly checking in on each other, coaching each other. And the odds of, the odds of dropout or trouble, you know, drop and so i remember working with a number of um great uh great posse alum alumni in, in city hall who just had amazing things to say about the program mm. and in the same way you know there are so many people in the city of boston as we speak right now who either have just moved here or have lived here for a little bit came because of a job but don't know anybody right and are sitting in their sitting in their apartment or what have you and just lonely and sad Right. Yep. And and the the beauty of what we do and the beauty of what cities and good communities can do is to bring people out of those environments, have them connected to new people. Not only is it good for, you know, what we do from a from a business perspective in terms of allowing people allowing more engagement in, in what we offer, but just creates a better community and and, and create you know, if you if you are somebody who's come to Boston for a job and you meet ten great people that you love hanging out with. You know, your chances of leaving the city of Boston go down regardless of whether you still have a job there, mm. right? Um, and that kind of that kind of power of connection, I think, has been uh, downplayed for so long because of the rise of the kind of, you know, I think very shallow replacement that we see through social media. Right, right. Um, all right, switching gears a little bit. It yeah. is called the Let's Go Show. <laughs> you know our values well, but yeah. I'm, I'm starting to get into quick fire rounds here. So Let's do it. Uh, L learning. What's something since joining? Obviously, HQO is very different than some of your other experiences. 
what is something you've learned since joining a high growth technology startup that I guess has surprised you? I think I've been pleasantly surprised by the similarity to a a congressional campaign or Mm -hmm. to any small group of people who believe in something, right? I think, you know, we've had many iterations of of people at HQO. We've had many different office spaces at HQO. Yep. But what has really driven us is, um, you know, we can tell every day who are the people who actually buy into our mission. Mm -hmm. And you can tell every day who are the people who are just going through the motion. Yep. And you are, I, I would take somebody who was maybe less developed skill wise, but believed in the mission vehemently 10 times more than the smart person who just is there to show up and collect the paycheck. Yep. And that, that was the same case in, in a congressional campaign. If you've got the right people who believe and are going to put in the extra time, that's how you're going to be successful. And I think, you know, obviously there's a learning curve in this role and there's a learning curve in many other roles, but I think that core tenant of, of, Gathering people who believe in a mutual mission is 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 success no matter what organization or industry you're talking about. Yeah, especially since most startups fail, right? Like one of the Paul Graham who founded Y Combinator talks about how people think about most areas think about startups wrong, where they're like, um, you know, why why don't startups succeed in other areas like they do in Silicon Valley? And he said most startups fail. The way to think about it is what antidote does Silicon Valley have that other places don't because they're default debt. You're, you're running at a loss from, right, right. from day one. Right. right. Um, all right. Excellence. Uh, Dan has become essentially my guide to things that I should buy in the world. He, he got me to switch credit cards. He got me to <laughs> switch all these things, but um, what product do you think or service or whatever is the most revolutionary? I think I know your answer. This is like a leading question. Uh but is going to have like the most profound change in the world outside of HQO, obviously. Well, I think it's really interesting to see the development of transportation and how, and I think we've seen that as well with regard to um, how we've seen traffic patterns change during COVID. Yeah. Um, There are, as soon as you take away the variable of commute times, Mm -hmm. there's been a flock to suburban home buying, all that stuff, because I think people fundamentally are optimizing around commutes, right? And so, as we've talked about many times, there are endless autonomous vehicle companies out there right now. And some people think of it as just a convenience thing. They say, Mm -hmm. oh, it's great. I can get in the back and and do my email or what have you. But the economic development impact of commute no longer being a factor is tremendous. If you think about, I think about a place like Lawrence, Massachusetts, which is in my district, which is a which is one of the poorest cities in in Massachusetts, adjacent to Andover, which is actually one of the, one you know a more affluent place. Lawrence was a mill town, be- objectively beautiful place, mm-hmm. um, right on the river. Yep. A lot of the mills are still there. If you think about a company that could go in there and set up a headquarters and in the existing footprint of the mill building, it would not only be an amazing place right. to set up a campus. But it would also be revolutionary in terms of economic development, job opportunities, and economic mobility for the residents of Lawrence. And Danny Rivera, the mayor of Lawrence, who I know very well, to his credit, was hardcore about recruiting Amazon when they were doing their whole H2 search, right? Mm. And Because he said, like, I can show you a beautiful waterfront property, millions of square feet you can move in tomorrow. Like, you know, and the problem was commutes, right? Right. The commuter rail goes to Lawrence. And the schedule's intermittent, right? If uh, on a good day right now, we could get to Lawrence in 25, 30 minutes. 
Yeah. But with commute times, you're talking hour, hour and a half, right? And it just became a, it was a challenge for him to convince them to go there. Now, if you're in California, everyone's used to taking, you're living in San Francisco, you're going to Cupertino or you're going to Mountain View. It's completely different mentality. But for some reason, especially in Boston, the idea of having a suburban campus and that commute is is tough. So if, if we are on path for alternative forms of transportation that will cause us to remove commute as a variable and decision making process then economic development just gets unleashed throughout this country and that i think has tremendous implications for how we live our lives every day yeah i actually uh my hot take on this is i think in by 2025 that autonomous driving will have had a much larger impact on the future of work than remote work like right now, everybody's talking about Zoom and these things. And I think just from my own psyche, but, you know, watching other people, I have seen Dan, Dan convinced me to buy the cheap Tesla and I got the autopilot and I live in Duxbury, Massachusetts, which is, you know, no traffic, probably 35 minutes south of Boston. Um, and on the highway, it legitimately drives itself. Like it's kind of crazy. and. What we're seeing is more remote work has a negative impact on a lot of people's mental health and wellness. And in the history uh, since we've had digital tools, when jobs get sent away and they can be done over the internet, wages don't go up, right? Innovation is driven by clustering of people, right? You have Hollywood for a reason. You have Wall Street for a reason. You have Silicon Valley for a reason. You had the Motor City for a while for a reason. And then labor got sent away. And it certainly wasn't good for Detroit. And I think cutting down commute times and making it um, easier, more accessible for people to reach economic centers, i.e. cities, will have a much, much more profound impact and then then zoom and some of these other tools like zoom and i also don't think they're substitutes i think they can both feed on each other but um that's my prediction but there are there are millions of people around this country who would be incredible in various roles but literally don't have the transportation or access or just geographic luck yeah to be near the opportunity to to take advantage of it right and and you know there there were I was talking to um, uh, a guy who led a nonprofit in the Merrimack Valley who was helping at-risk youth or people who had already made some mistake and been incarcerated find new jobs. Um, one of the biggest challenges was just getting them to get to the job, right? If there was a, you know, when, when you've been incarcerated and you have a record, there are certain jobs that are off limits and then there are more, mm-hmm. more jobs that there are other jobs that you can do. Right. But if you're living in Lowell and the opportunity is in New Hampshire, or if you're living in Lowell and the opportunity is in the South Shore, how the hell do you get there? And, you know, how do you make it work? And that extra, to your point about, you know, the mental load and everything, just the stress of, of that, yeah. you come to work already stressed out, exhausted, and oftentimes, you know, in the hole financially because you've spent a lot of money getting there, right? Right. Um, right. And, and we're seeing that now with COVID, you know, there's, the MBTA was already in a very difficult situation and now you've got reduced hours and all that stuff. So a lot of times it's our, our most vulnerable uh, people who are, being forced to find creative ways to get to their place yeah. of, of work 
and and more of their share of wallet is going into transportation costs than it should, but even more so now in COVID. And it's just a a terrible situation that yeah. can be rectified with more thoughtful use of technology. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, all right, last one, truth. Yeah. What is something you know to be true, believe to be true, that's either unpopular or contrarian? This is my my new favorite question. <laughs> yeah, this 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 won't be surprising given what I just said, but um, you know, I think I think especially now in a country that's more divided than we've ever seen in our lives. And like, especially after last night, statistically so, right? Mm -hmm. You you just look at where people are falling. Yep. It's almost straight down the middle as to where people are are aligning, you know, philosophically. There is a perception that government is is a waste of time, that nothing gets done filled with a bunch of egotistical assholes, quite frankly. Mm -hmm. And, and, um, you know, one's time is better spent in the private sector and should just, you know, write that off as a loss, right? But I've been very, very fortunate to see, you know, whether it be Ted Kennedy, whether it be Mayor Menino, whether it be Mayor Walsh especially, what people who are in it for the right reasons can actually do. Mm -hmm. And if you're in it for the right reasons, you can make a whole lot of difference, both on the, you know, day-to-day level, working with people who need it on, on a given moment. You know, Mayor Walsh has canceled meetings because he was able to find a halfway house for somebody and literally drove away without security knowing and picking that person up and driving them there. <laughs> right. But then also large scale policy change. Right. Yeah. So mayor Walsh was a, was and continues to be a union leader um, and realized early on that his life was changed because when he struggled with alcoholism, he was in the building trades and there was a union there to support him. And they identified that he had a problem. They helped him through it. And, and that's like his what he believes so deeply right. in unions as a result, it created not not dissimilar to what we talked about, created a community. Um, but he realized that that was cut off to communities of color. So he started a program called Building Pathways, where he, I think it was 60 or so people of color that he found um, th- that, that they recruited, brought into the system, and, and were able to get them union opportunities. And that set them off um, in their career. And then when he was in City Hall, he created this program called Operation Exit, which is you know, taking taking gang involved and at risk individuals and getting them into the building trades, mm, allowing them to cool. see a different pathway for them. And there was this really powerful story. He told me that um, one of the people in the program at one point during a t- day was doing some construction and was on a beam and was staring into space. And 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 his his coworker was trying to figure out what to do and saying, you know, you you know, you, you got to work. You can't just stand there. And the guy said, "Sorry, like I'm just having a moment because, like, you know, some time ago I was." worried for my life and I was didn't know where my life was going and now I have this amazing opportunity and mm. I, I just can't even believe it. Right. And so that's to me somebody who has taken their own personal experiences, understood where their he, in this case he, can make an impact and actually made that impact. Right. There are hundreds and hundreds of people who have now gone through these programs whose lives are dramatically different because Marty Walsh believed in it and wanted to make it better. Um, and I've just seen that too many times in government to dis to discount what government can do. And it saddens me, and I think it's oftentimes of, of its own infliction, that the stereotype, vast majority stereotype that people believe out there is that government is ineffective mm-hmm. and that nothing gets done. Because in the right in the right context, in the right ways, so much can get done for people. That is contrarian in, today, <laughs> it is. in today's environment. Sadly, it so is. that's a good one. That's a good Self-inflicted, one. though, because I think so many people are in it for the wrong reasons. They're not yeah. thinking about how you actually get things done. And again- Good, good tweets and social media hits and videos are fine. But like at the end of the day, when the rubber meets the road, how are you helping people? Well, yeah. And I, I think it also, it 
to to be fair, I think we talk about how social media just exacerbates outlier stories, right? Yep. And I've seen in the last like three, four, five months, whatever it is, I forget if, if it was the governor of Iowa or Idaho, um, but she she had a incredibly pleasant exchange with a journalist where she was like. I don't mean to snap at you about, you know, the she the governor believed that the journalist was sensationalizing COVID yep. and they kind of had an exchange and she hit the pause button and was like, you and I are community members. We're both, you know, citizens of this state. Like, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have said that. I shouldn't have just assumed the worst from you. Like, we need to work together to get there. Like, yep. that got no coverage, no retweets, no likes. Like, it didn't go anywhere, right? Yep. So it's... Um, I, I think I'll probably, as is the case with most things in life, most people are good. Yep. You know, so um, did I hit everything, Tom? We didn't do um, reading. Reading. Yeah. What are you reading? Money. Or what would you recommend for people these days? This is a little bit cliche these days, but I was early on the money ball train. Yeah. So, um, you know, the, the, the presentation that I give around city score, the title of it is what government can learn from baseball. Um, and I really think that philosophy of looking at things differently, whether it be, um, you know, Billy Bean and, and the way he approached the Oakland days or in, um, in Malcolm Gladwell talked about that really cool story about this, like, I think it was a like Silicon Valley dad who took over coaching a basketball team for his daughter and he didn't know anything about basketball. So he just realized like, why aren't, like, why do you, why do you score and then run to the other side of the court? Why don't you hmm. full court press all the time? And he's like, yeah, yeah. daughter was like, dad, don't do that. And he was like, well, we're just going to do that. Like get in people's faces. And they end up like winning the championship <laughs> <laughs> just because it was a completely different mentality. So, you know, I think that it's very easy to look at systems, whether it be in the private sector, or the public sector and say yeah. to yourself, that's what we've got to follow as a result. But if you take a different look at things, you can see it now in baseball today. And some people argue the shift is ruining baseball, but I think it's just smart use of data, right? Yeah. How, how it's transformed the, the game. Um, and, and I think the way we're looking at things at HUO, and I think the way companies in the public or private sector, if they're taking a fresh look at things, um, they can really both create competitive advantage, but also make a big difference. Yeah. And that's, uh, it is fascinating how little data, uh, our customers have on how people actually use buildings, which is kind of the, the whole reason we're here right so uh what else i think that's pretty good been doing about an hour and 15 so look at that easy peasy nice uh all right co thanks for coming on man thanks guys thanks for having me let's go chef let's go <laughs> hour 15 pretty good wrap.